Okay, you can have a seat. As we mentioned a few minutes ago, uh, six years ago, a team was sent out from LCF to Western Asia, compelled by Christ's calling. This was a group of workers appointed for a specific mission in a specific place among a specific people. And we're going to see something very similar. In fact, we're going to see the genesis of this sort of sending today in Luke chapter 10 as we continue our series in the Gospel of Luke. So would you turn with me to Luke chapter 10? We will read verses 1 through 12, but we're going to spend most of our time on the first two verses today. This is the Word of God. Let's read it together. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them ahead of him in pairs to every town and place where he himself was about to go. He told them, the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Now go, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. Don't carry a money bag, traveling bag, or sandals, and don't greet anyone along the road. Whatever house you enter, first say peace to this household. If a person of peace is there, your peace will rest on him, but if not, it will return to you. Remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the worker is worthy of his wages. Don't move from house to house. When you enter any town and they welcome you, eat the things set before you, heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God has come near you. When you enter any town and they don't welcome you, Go out into its streets and say, We are wiping off even the dust of your town that clings to our feet as a witness against you. Know this for certain, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, on that day it will be more tolerable for Sodom than for that town. This is the word of the Lord. You might remember that there is a similar commissioning and sending of the disciples passage that happens at the start of chapter 9 in Luke. And uh, there are lots of similarities between the two passages, and we're not going to touch on all of those today. So if you want to hear some of those principles taught, some of the points of today's passage that we're not going to touch on taught, I would encourage you to listen to a sermon by T.A. titled Utterly Dependent from May 30th. So if you want to learn those points, go listen to that. Or if you want to just see T.A. shake it off like Taylor Swift go listen to the message. Um, It says shake the dust off in chapter 9, and T.A. demonstrates it for us. So go check that out. But there are some distinct differences in the sending that we see here in chapter 10 compared to what we saw in chapter 9. And so we're going to look at some of those together. And while we're doing that, we're going to establish three timeless truths for the church for all ages, all time. These are always true. Three timeless truths and one major application. Okay, so that's what we're doing. Three truths, one application today, and I'm going to go ahead and give you the main point. All followers of Jesus are called to pray for the harvest of the nations and for the sending of workers to reap the harvest. The first distinctive we notice right away in chapter 10 is that instead of the 12 apostles, who's being sent? 72 others. Who are these 72? These 72 are other people who are following Christ, but not designated as apostles. And this is extremely important for us to notice even today because it eliminates the possibility 
that Jesus' great commission was only for the 12 apostles. Or, in principle, might I add, only for today's full-time missionaries. Some have tried to argue over the years that Jesus' commission only applied to the 12. For example, Tim mentioned William Carey last week, if you were here. William Carey, in the late, late 1700s, a young man, he was trying to petition the church in Britain to go evangelize India and, and elsewhere in the world, and he was reprimanded by an older minister who said, young man, sit down. You're an enthusiast. When God wants to convert these heathen people, he'll do it without consulting you or me. And William Carey was appalled that his fellow Protestants ignored the Great Commission, some even saying it didn't apply to them. Whereas Carey argued correctly that it applies to all Christians at all times. In Luke chapter 10, we see Jesus sending normal Christians, commissioning them to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God. And, and I'm glad, and I hope you are too, that William Carey didn't listen to that older minister because he helped spur what might be known today as the modern missions movement, which has seen many people groups hear the gospel and some enter the kingdom of God. So we see right off the bat that proclaiming the kingdom of God in new places is not just for the 12. It's not just for super apostles. And by the same principle, friends, we can say today that missions is not just for missionaries, but for the entire church. Missions is not just for missionaries, but for the whole church. Now, when I say that, I sense in my bones that some of you get a little resistant. I've done this before, and I sense the resistance. I see like your fences going up. You figured out what this is. It's okay. It's the missionary's turn to talk. I didn't know that maybe when I was coming here. Uh, of course, he's going to like guilt us into being involved in missions. Just tell me when he's back across the ocean. Uh, okay? Now, if this is you, if this is you, let me offer some, some perspective and some encouragement. Three things. First... If you want to call today's message a missionary message, then you have to admit that our God is a missionary God. And his word is a missionary book because we're just continuing in the series here. And we're trying to take God at his word, just like we do every week here at LCF, and let his word be authoritative. Secondly, friends, I'll call you brothers and sisters whom I love. I mean, look at me up here. This is not about me and you, okay? Me projecting something on you. It's about us together at LCF and, and, and the big universal, big C church, together trying to faithfully be obedient to what our Lord is calling here. That's what's going on this morning. No offense is necessary. Thirdly, I assure you that I personally have need for growth and repentance on today's topic. As I was studying this, I'm going, how am I going to talk about this uh, when my prayer life, for example, is less than fervent at times. So I'm with you at the feet of Jesus today, ready to learn. All right, so let's take the fences down. Let's take up our cross instead and follow him, okay? You with me? The first truth for us to see today is that all followers of Jesus are called to proclaim the kingdom of God. All followers of Jesus are called to proclaim the kingdom of God. Last Sunday, Tim walked us through... Um, the end of Luke chapter 9, and we see this account where there's, again, normal people, three normal people telling Jesus they want to follow him, or Jesus calling them to follow him, one of the two. 
And Jesus is helping give them perspective and count the cost of what they're desiring. And if you look at verse 60 in chapter 9, Jesus gives a simple job description to the second person there. He says, as for you, go and do what? Go and proclaim the kingdom of God. So he's giving the 72 here in chapter 10 a similar job description. Look at verse 9 of chapter 10. Here's what you are to say in these towns you go to. The kingdom of God has come near you. All disciples of Jesus are to spend their lives proclaiming the kingdom of God. Now let me talk about kingdom for a minute because we live in an individualistic society that likes to mainly focus on individual forgiveness of sins and individual tickets to heaven. And those things are very important and should be included in our gospel. But friends, there is a king of this universe. He rules and he reigns in righteousness, maybe not in a visible way right now, but one day he will. And this is the king and this is the kingdom that we say it's near. And you can have access to it in Jesus. So we talk about righteousness. We talk about judgment while we talk about forgiveness of sins and we talk about eternal life, going to heaven. But it's the kingdom that we preach. So let's not miss that. All followers of Jesus spend their lives proclaiming the kingdom with our words, of course, don't forget that, and with our deeds. We see here that Jesus gave them power to heal similar to what he did with the 12 in chapter 9. And T.A. talked about healing a little bit uh, a few weeks back, so we're not going to touch on that today, healing specifically. But suffice it to say, we see the principle that acts of love and compassion accompany a verbal message. And our job description is the same today. We proclaim the kingdom of God with our lips and with our lives. Brief excursus on something that's really important here in this passage and in the word of God. Some, uh, some of us might wonder sometimes, why us? You know, why would the king involve us in this? Like, don't we slow him down? Does he, does he, does he really need us? You know, why does Jesus not just accomplish the furthering of the kingdom himself? And interesting thing going on in, in the Greek language here in these passages from last week and this week. Let me explain it briefly. Last week, we saw that Jesus reached a point in his ministry when he, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He knew it was time, and Tim called it a determined journey. From that point on, he's determined, my face is set toward Jerusalem. We see in chapter, uh, one, chapter 10, verse 1, that actually a very similar usage in, in the Greek text. Literally, it says this, he sent the 72 before his face, to all the places and towns where he was about to go. So picture this with me. You got Jesus. He's resolute. He's got his game face on. You know, that game face that only Michael Jordan got when nothing is standing in his way. Like today's wannabe goats who can't make it out of the first round, they need to learn this type of face. Jesus got his game face on. Let's go back to Jesus. He's got his game face on. Amazing uh, resolve. Beautiful boldness, I mean, daring uh, focus uh, from our Lord here. It's, but then he lets this motley crew go before his face to these places. Like, what is he doing? Like, aren't his resolved heart and his laser-focused eyes enough for the task? What, why is he involved in these characters? And why would he involve us? Well, the answer to the does he need them question is, of course, no. Absolutely not. Jesus can accomplish this work by himself, but why? As my three-year-old would ask then, okay, that's that answer, but why? Why would Jesus involve us? 
Speaking of three-year-olds, one of the things I've enjoyed doing this week when I'm back in America is mowing the grass. Have you enjoyed that? Perspective, I haven't done it for two years. You know, we have a small, we live in uh, an apartment in a very crowded city, so we don't have a yard. And uh, I used to own a yard in the Northland, like many of you. And when I would mow the yard there, I would get out my powerful, sharp-bladed, efficient-for-the-task machine. But sometimes my little sons, three years old-ish, Luke or Elijah, would come out and they'd guess what they'd carry with them? Their plastic, toy, cheap mower. Now, why would I let them join me? Were they actually cutting any grass? Actually, they were distracting me. You know, I had, to, I had to care for them, keep eyes on them, and sometimes they cut in front of my face. So why would I let them join me? Couldn't I have got the job done faster without them? Did I need them? Why? Because, friends, the love and joy and glory of a father and his children are magnified when they work in unity with each other, when they do things together. And you don't have to have a family or children for this principle to be true. We could say it this way. A community enjoying the concert of co-laboring together results in greater love, joy, and glory than when individuals work by themselves. This is in God's very nature. Okay, God set it up this way. We see this in the Trinity, don't we? In the Godhead himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, beautiful community, beautiful cooperative harmony as the Son submits to the Father, and the Father delights in the Son, and the Spirit glorifies both. This is the love and the community of our triune God. And guess what? Brothers and sisters, he invites us into it. He invites you into it because he loves you. And he wants his joy to be in you. And he wants your joy to be full. Those are Jesus' words as well. If you are not walking in relationship with Jesus Christ, you don't know this love or this joy that we're talking about. Cry out to him as the Lord and Savior today. Confess your insignificance without him and your insurrection against him. And cling to his sufficiency that only he can give, that only he has earned and won. Cling to his sufficiency, his perfection, his death, his resurrection. And crown him as the king that he is and commit the rest of your days to him. He truly wants to share his love, his joy with you in relationship. We spend so much of our breath in Western Asia pleading with Muslims to let go of this yoke, this burden of meritocracy, where they're always trying to earn God's favor, never knowing if they've done enough, and to trade in this yoke for the all-sufficient, finished work of Jesus Christ, who is a king, a magnificent king, who not only died for them and rose again, but now also invites them, invites us to join him in what he's doing. What a marvelous Savior. So, friends, I'm not here to guilt anybody into being involved in anything today. I'm talking about glory. I'm talking about love, joy, your good. As we consider the king inviting us into what he's doing. Because, friends, here's the sober truth. If we are following Jesus, but we don't seem to be experiencing this love and joy that we're mentioning here, 
It might be because he's outside mowing the grass and we're up to something else. It might be that we have misconceived the notion of discipleship that says we're going to invite him into our lives and to bless whatever we're doing. That's not discipleship. That's not the self-denying, cross-bearing call of Christ that we saw in Luke 9 last month. Does Jesus ever go up to somebody and say, I'll join you? No, he says what? Follow me. Follow me where I'm going. Brothers and sisters, let's follow him. Would you join me this week in, in repenting and in recommitting to join with Jesus on his mission? He loves us. He wants our joy. He's after glory. A community co-laboring together results in greater love, joy, and glory than when individuals labor by themselves. I like to call the great commission the great co-mission because we have the privilege of being on mission, co-laboring with our king, who's the one cutting all the grass. We're just in it for the love and the joy. What more could you want? What more could we want than to join God in his work? What is his work? A lot of things could be said about what is God up to that we can join him in. Today, I just want to focus on a major theme, a major work that he is up to during this age, this age of the church before Jesus comes again. And we could discern this work together by remembering the major theme of, a major theme of Luke's gospel. And we see this theme most clearly, we could look at a lot of places, but today we're going to see it most clearly in the transition between the gospel of Luke to the book of Acts. I want you to remember that Luke wrote a single uh, volume in two different works, Luke and Acts. And we see his emphasis and we see God's most urgent work in this age by looking at several places in those two books. Today we're going to look at the transition. So turn to the last chapter of Luke, chapter 24, verse 45. Luke 24, 45. Here we have the resurrected Jesus with his disciples. Let's read. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He also said to them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name, proclaiming the kingdom, in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Tim Fritzen said this in his very first sermon during this current Luke series. He said, Luke's perspective is God's saving work for the nations. Luke emphasizes how it is that Jesus is the means by which God culminates his plan, all the way back in the Old Testament is revealed, culminates his plan and fulfills his promise to bring salvation to all peoples of the world. Luke is bringing this out, telling us how Jesus is going to fulfill this in this age. Turn the page or pass the book of John to Acts chapter 1. Again, same author, Luke's still writing. Acts chapter 1, I'm in verse 6. Acts chapter 1, verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, they being the apostles, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? You know, this kingdom we've been proclaiming to everyone, is, is it here? We've been telling everyone it's near. Is it here? At verse 7, Jesus said to them, it is not for you to know times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses 
same word as in Luke 24, witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Brothers and sisters, God's purpose for this age is to take the gospel of the kingdom through his witnesses to all the peoples to the ends of the earth for his glory. And he invites us to join him. He invites us to join him. My wife's family has an apple orchard in Ohio. It's called Carnes Orchard, her, her maiden name. And there are over 6,000 trees there uh, producing peaches, cherries, uh, mostly apples. And when you go there, you see many happy customers marveling at the fruitful harvest and what a wonderful business it is. And you know what? Even though I only played a very small part in it, I may have helped plant some trees like way back in the day, very small part of it. You know how proud I am to be part of something like this? Corey and uh, Erica Thomason were at my house last month, and one day Erica said, I think the fourth day she was there, how many Carnes Orchard shirts do you have? <laughs> I miss my wardrobe every day. Why? Because we're proud to represent a family business like this, even if we just have, like, know somebody who's part of it, right? What an, that's quite an honor. Well, what bigger honor could there be than joining the Father who's on mission, than joining the King of Kings in the expansion of his kingdom? There's no greater honor that I can think of. All followers of Jesus are called to proclaim the kingdom of God. Our second truth, which we will spend less time on, is this. Some followers of Jesus are sent with specific partners to specific peoples and places. We went from all to some. Some followers are sent with specific partners to specific peoples and places. In Luke chapter 10, verse 1, it said Jesus sends the 72 in pairs to every town and place where he himself was about to go. So specific partners and places. For example, in Acts 13, verse 1, he sets aside, we know this one, Paul and Barnabas to the specific work that he has called them. And he continues to do likewise today as he sends workers out into his harvests. Let's not forget that. In fact, may I be so bold as to say this, maybe the Lord is calling you to go. Maybe, don't put that fence back up, maybe the Lord is calling you to have a specific partner, a specific place among a specific people. Maybe he's laid that on your heart. Maybe it's just an inkling right now, but you need to obey him and let that develop. I've had a specific prayer request developed this week. I wrestled with whether to share this or not, but I'm going to share it. As I was praying through this passage and preparing, I found myself praying that the Lord would set aside 72 from LCF to go to new frontiers with the gospel. 72. Maybe you're one of them. The Lord can answer that prayer request however he wants, but maybe you're one of them. Jesus is all about appointing and sending, brothers and sisters. As a church, we studied Luke 9 last month, as I mentioned, and I love that chapter. Maybe my favorite in the whole Bible, just the essence of discipleship. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus, Luke chapter 9? I want you to consider with me for a minute that that great chapter is bookended on both sides by what? Sending appointing and sending. You want to know what it means to be a disciple? It means writing the Lord of the universe a blank check and saying, I'm following you. Where do you want me to go? What do you want me to do? Jesus, appointing people to go out into the harvest. He's all about appointing and sending people. Maybe you're one of them.
as we consider that, how do we know which partners to go with? We need to find organizations and teams that proclaim the kingdom of God, as we're seeing here today. They give priority to verbal proclamation of the gospel accompanied by deeds of love. Go with people who trumpet Jesus as the king of a kingdom, the Lord of the harvest, and the only name under heaven given by which men can be saved. The only name. Well, what peoples and places do we go to? Jesus' words in Luke 24 are that the gospel will go to all the nations. Pantata ethne. The same phrase used in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 19, when Jesus says, disciple all the nations. The same phrase used in Mark 13, 10, when Jesus says it is necessary that the gospel be preached to all the nations. Some commentators even say that here in Luke chapter 10, Jesus' specific choosing of 70 or 72, depending on the manuscript you're looking at, is a symbolic, um, significant representation of the number of nations in the world. For example, in Genesis 10, there are 70 nations listed. So Jesus is picking 72 on purpose to say, this mission is for all the nations. So if he wants to take the gospel, the kingdom to all the nations, where should we focus? Did you know that there are 3.3 billion people on the planet today that live in what we would refer to as an unreached people group, which practically means they have little to no access to the gospel of the kingdom that we're talking about. If we want to finish the task of taking the gospel of the kingdom to all the nations, Jesus' major work for this age, we need to focus on these peoples and these places. Great ministry happening everywhere, even here in America, not knocking any of that but we need to focus on finishing the task. Speaking of focus, uh, in today's passage, Jesus gives them some travel instructions as they go, and we can draw some principles from this. For example, verse 4, he says, don't greet anyone. Now that seems weird to us, right? We even have greeting time at LCF, or we used to. I noticed that uh, isn't in all the time anymore since we left, but you do a great job of greeting each other before and after the service. Jesus says, don't greet anybody. Now, that sounds unfriendly to me, uh, but some perspective. Ancient greetings in that time took a lot of time and effort. Sometimes it required several hours I'm reading. I, I want to see one of those, so I don't know what type of greeting it was. So Jesus says, don't mess with that. Basically, what he's saying is, don't get distracted. Don't get distracted. Keep your hand to the plow. Keep your focus on proclaiming the kingdom of God. In verse 8, he says, eat the things set before you. We do a lot of that in Western Asia without knowing what we're eating, um, at least in our first few years. But in principle, what Jesus is saying here is don't be concerned with worldly novelties or, or, or what you want all the time. Be content with what is given. Stay focused. And friends, we know that this sort of focus and contentment can only be achieved by the Holy Spirit. I can't do that in my own strength. Which is why in Acts 1.8, what does Jesus say? You'll receive power when the Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. There's no witnessing without the Spirit and His power. So this is the profile of an appointed worker, the power of the Holy Spirit. Some followers of Jesus are sent with specific partners to specific peoples and places. But guess what, my friends? There aren't enough of these workers. There aren't enough of these being sent. Here's the sobering reality that Jesus tells us in Luke 10 too. 
The harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. I'm ready, Jesus says, to harvest people into my kingdom. John 4.35, he says, the fields are ripe. They're ready for harvest, but the workers are few. No one wants to go out into this harvest where there's danger. He said, you're like lambs among wolves. And where the results can often be discouraging. So what must be done? Well, what can, what can we do when we see this sobering reality? Let's continue in verse 2. Therefore, Jesus says, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Our third and final truth, which is also our main point of application today, is this. All followers, we're back to all, okay? All followers of Jesus are called to pray for the harvest of the nations and for the sending of workers to reap the harvest. This is our first basic but oh so easy to neglect way of getting involved in the harvest. Prayer for workers to be sent. This word pray here is translated elsewhere as beseech or beg. Or in the ESV it says pray earnestly. Pray as if there's no tomorrow. We get all caught up in what is this missions thing and where's my calling and let me think about this as an American. Quit thinking. Pray. Pray. The first and central command in this passage is to pray. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Friends, every abundant harvest since the birth of the church has been undergirded by prayer. Undergirded by prayer. Sometimes we miss it. Prayer is like an afterthought. But prayer is no afterthought. Prayer is primary in this mission. In Acts chapter 2, for example, the believers we read are devoted to prayer. Devoted to prayer. And what kind of harvest are they seeing? Daily. Daily people are being added to their number that are being saved. Acts chapter 4, we see threats from religious leaders, persecution. What's the response? United prayer and for boldness and for continued proclamation of the gospel. And God answers that. That's what happens the rest of the book of Acts. Despite persecution, we see prayer in the middle of that and we see proclamation. Don't miss the prayer. It's right in the middle of it. It's easy to miss, but it's vital. It's everywhere. In Acts 13.1, we mentioned earlier, when Paul and Barnabas are set apart to go to new frontiers, what is the church doing when God speaks to them? Fasting and praying. It continues on after the New Testament. In the 1700s, the Moravian community in Harnhut, Germany, I asked my brother if I pronounced that right later. He used to live there. In Germany, they established an around-the-clock prayer vigil that lasted for over 100 years. They said, we got to pray. Guess what happened? One of the things that resulted from that prayer vigil was the first ever Protestant uh, missionaries being sent outside of the West, like to new frontiers. Prayer. Uh, these Moravians inspired a young William Carey, by the way. In the 1800s in inland China, Hudson Taylor used to pray for a specific number of workers to come join him. For example, one year he prayed that he would have 100 new recruits, and the Lord answered with 102. Every harvest since the birth of the church has not only been undergirded, it has been powered by prayer. Well, how about us? How about our day and age? Are we a people characterized by earnest prayer? This thought can be overwhelming because most of us would answer no, including me a lot of times, okay? This week, like I said, I was reduced to repentance as I 
thought about my prayer life. It can be overwhelming because there's so much to consider praying for. May I encourage us today to start with simple obedience to this simple command of our Lord. Pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send workers out into his harvest. Prayer is a matter of obedience, but it is also a conduit of the love and joy that we were talking about earlier. Prayer not only fosters intimacy with God, it also facilitates a deeper sense of togetherness with the workers and with the harvest. This last Christmas, for example, we uh, organized some Zoom fellowship times between our team and uh, financial supporters here at LCF. And one person on the call who, this is fun because she may or may not be sitting over here in this half of the room. Um, she said on the call, she said, hey, I just want to say thank you for allowing us to share the gospel with people of Western Asia through you. I want to allow us to be part of this with you. And that's what happens when you're partnered in prayer. You sense this solidarity with the workers and, and with your new brothers and sisters in Western Asia. So that joy and that love is what I'm after here, okay? That's what I'm after, and that's what Jesus is after in this passage. Sometimes it starts with obedience, like just taking the first step, but the, the, there's joy in the journey. I can tell you as a worker on the field, there is nothing to this day, six years in, I've said the same thing for six years, so I'll keep saying it. There is nothing more encouraging to me on the field than when I get a message from one of you that says, I prayed for you today. Or my family prayed for you today, and I know you actually prayed. Keep it up. Keep it up. But please don't just pray for existing workers. We need more. We need more. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Let's see that last slide. I want you to look at these pictures, these people, these places. Pray for these people groups who currently have very little or no access to the gospel by which they can be saved. Pray specifically. Pray regularly. I simply wrote Luke 10.2 in my prayer journal this week so I wouldn't forget to pray this simple prayer. I read of someone setting their alarm for 10.02. So every day when that goes off, they remember to pray uh, diligently this simple prayer. Whatever it takes to remember. Use a resource. This came from the Joshua Project. Joshua Project. Um, was it .com or .org? I can't remember. You find it. Operation World is another good one. Find one. Pray individually. Pray together. Just pray. Pray regularly. Pray specifically. Friends, one last reminder as we close here. The one speaking in Luke 10 is the king of the kingdom. He's not making suggestions here. This is the Lord overall. Jesus' lordship is front and center. Tim's been talking about how it's developed through the book of Luke. It's front and center here. He's called the Lord. He's the Lord of the harvest. He's the Lord whom we pray to. He's the Lord who appoints. He's the Lord who sends. It's his harvest. It's for his glory. And we have the privilege of partnering with him through prayer. Brothers and sisters, the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. to invite the worship team to come forward. And we're going to spend some time praying uh, to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers. And would you stand up, uh, please?
And we're going to do it a little bit different. We don't normally uh, do a corporate prayer where everybody is lifting their individual voices, but we're going to do that at this time. In Acts 4, it says, they all lifted up one voice. And uh, during this time, uh, I want you individually to pray to God, to pray for the Lord, to send out laborers. Can we actually get that slide back up of the people groups?